0: Jesus, I thank you for these three, Lord. I thank you that you love them, that you've rescued them, that you've called them your own. Lord, I thank you that uh, you are a good shepherd and that you are their good shepherd, and that you have plans that uh, you have set out for them. Lord, they may not know, they may have some ideas, God, but you know we make our plans, but it's you, Lord, who directs our steps. And so, Jesus, I just pray more than anything else, you would keep them near to you because you are the shepherd, Jesus. Would you just keep them near to you? Would they hear your voice, Lord? Would their time with you be sweeter than ever? Would your spirit be leading them and guiding them in, in the way they should go? I thank you that you know what the next season, you know what summer's gonna look like, what the fall's gonna look like. Lord, I just pray against any anxiety or fear, um, even just the pressure that comes from friends and family. Like, so what are you gonna do? Where are you gonna work? What? Like, How's that going? How's your job application? Like all that stuff, Lord, I just... Pray for peace and um, they would sense your nearness and your love, Lord. Thank you for them, God. We just want to send them out, right? I ask right now that you would fill them with a fresh anointing and dose of your spirit. Come upon them, Holy Spirit. Come upon them in power, I ask, for new gifts, Lord, for this new season, a new sense of your nearness, God. I ask that you would do powerful things through them and that they would know like, man, this is the Lord, like the Lord's hands on my life. This isn't me. And would they be able just to testify that the, they know the Lord, the Lord is with them, God. So use them mightily, fill them now. It's in Jesus' name, Amen. 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 <laughs> All right. Uh, We can open up also to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 in our Bibles. We're going to be reading the first 11 verses of John chapter 8. I'll read and then we will pray. John 8. We're actually going to read verse 53 and then to 11. Here we go. John chapter 8 says this. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. Jesus, I thank you that if we have put our trust in you, that you look at us and say, neither do I condemn you. Lord, I ask for a fresh sense of your love and your mercy tonight over us. Jesus, any way in which people are accusing us and especially the enemy is accusing us even as we came in your presence tonight lord i ask that you would silence the voices of the enemy and that you jesus would speak to us that you do not condemn us that you made a way for us thank you that you're patient and gracious to people like us so would you come now it's in jesus name amen okay uh how many of you guys noticed like something about this passage in the bible reading it like okay it's got like parentheses or like wait what the heck is this even original any of you like notice that right off off the top of your head uh have any of you ever heard anything about this like it'd be interesting raise your hand if you ever heard anything about this passage yeah okay meaning like it's not original or something right okay So that's good. I'm pretty sure in most of our Bibles, it should say something like the earliest manuscripts, do not include it. Or in in mine says in some passages, it's in John 21 or after Luke 21. Um, So this is actually a brief, a good moment to like briefly talk about this passage and passages like this. Um, It's really important because a passage like this can be used by people to be like, hey, look, see the Bible, you know, you can't trust it. There's errors, there's holes, people added stuff, whatever. So um, as a brief, brief intro, I have 10 points on the Bible and this passage, but it'll be so quick. Uh, So number one, listen, I want to remind us of this glorious truth that the Bible is from God. It's God breathed, it's divine, it's supernatural, it's more than a human book. We read this verse, I think, A week ago or two weeks ago, all scripture is breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. Number one. Number two, the Bible did not fall out of the sky, in case you didn't know that. You'd maybe think that because the Bible's from God, right? So it just came to us in English like this. Um, But it did not. It was uh, over thousands of years, we know that various authors, like 35-ish authors, recorded what we know as the Bible. Um, They were real people in history, and yet somehow, real people in history, God spoke and gave us his word, okay? Number two, we know this. Number three, you maybe didn't ever think about the fact That the Bible, uh, there wasn't a printing press, there wasn't like digital anything. So somebody, Moses, wrote down, you know, the book of Genesis, and then there was one copy of Genesis. That was the word of God. And so if people had more Jews, they would have scribes, and they would literally just picture word by word, writing out, copying the Bible. Like every, uh, for the first like hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years, this book was copied by hand by people. Scribes were like writing it down diligently um and we believe so we even right now have over 5,000 of these types of like copies and manuscripts from history 5,000 like it would it's a lot it's a lot which is cool because uh fun fact something like some of uh like the most popular works from like the roman days or the greek days we have like five copies, six copies, seven copies of like a work of Plato. And like the earliest we can tell it was like from around a thousand AD, a thousand years after Plato. And we're like, okay, I mean, I think Plato wrote that. The Bible, we have like thousands of manuscripts, which is awesome. But this is important to note. Um, As people, we believe God perfectly breathed his word. God doesn't mess up. And Moses wrote it down perfectly. But as people by hand copied those copiers weren't necessarily perfect. They were humans, right? So one could misspell something here. One can mess up punctuation there. Um, And so we have copies with like very slight human scribal errors, like really, really minor things. And the cool thing is we have so many copies that we can see like, oh, that person spelled that wrong. Yeah, we can tell like, that's not how it's supposed to be spelled because we have 19 other copies over here. So that's something that happened in the process of copying the Bible. Now, here's an important question. How do we know which writings are God-breathed scripture and which ones are just like, you know, here's a good story about God. Because there were other writings that were being written down to Jews in this time. Uh, You guys heard of the Apocrypha. Many of those were writings from like the similar time that a lot of this was written. So how do we know that this is God-breathed and other copies and manuscripts are not God-breathed? Good question. Number four, we, we know this the Old Testament, so everything before Matthew, was universally agreed on by the Jews of Jesus' day as the Old Testament, as Scripture, as God breathed. So Jesus came on the scene, Jews would have, they called it the Tanakh, and it was the Old Testament that we know exactly as it is today, and uh, that they all agreed it was Scripture. And the cool thing is, Jesus also agreed, yeah, that's Scripture. So that kind of helps like All of the Old Testament, Jesus was like, yeah, that's the word of God. He referred to it as the word of God. So how do we know what is scripture, what's not scripture? Well, Jesus affirmed the Old Testament of his day. Now, the the other question is, how do we know about the New Testament then, right? Okay, so Old Testament, we can trust from Jesus. How do we know about the New Testament? Um, The New Testament was written over a period of like 150 years after Jesus was... uh, even less, I think, like 130 years after Jesus died. And there are specific requirements that we have to know, like this is the Bible, this is God-breathed, and this is not. Um, A couple of these requirements were it had to be written by an apostle or an associate of apostle, like a firsthand, like this person walked with Jesus or this person like Luke spent a lot of time with apostles. So they had to be uh, an associate of apostle and an apostle. Also, there's this thing that is about the Bible that if we any of us have read it, we know there's a this is going to sound crazy but it's true. There's this self-authenticating like beauty when we read it. Like when you read the Bible, it's like living and active, like it's alive. It's different. It's different than just a good book. Like you may really like Harry Potter and it's a really good book and it moves you, but there's just something different when you read the Bible. It's this idea that it's self-authenticating and here's how uh, there's a couple ways to put it, ways to put it. Jesus said, "My sheep know my voice." So we trust godly people were able to be like, man, that, that sounds like Jesus that tastes like Jesus. Another thing we know that Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's gonna come and lead you into all truth, that the Holy Spirit was really divinely like helping us know what was scripture, what was not scripture. Um, another thing I would just say is this, uh, I love Diet Coke, like passionately. Like yesterday, I probably had six Diet Cokes, like big Diet Cokes. Like when I'm like out somewhere, I'm just refill, refill, refill. I go to Costco, my, I'm just full of Diet Coke, Right. So if someone were to come to me, and they do, the people say this, like, oh, you don't really, like, you don't really know Diet Coke. If, they, if someone was to blindfold me, give me a blind taste test of Diet Pepsi and Diet Coke, I could tell you with 100% confidence, my son's life on the line, I'll tell you what's Diet Coke and what's not Diet Coke. I just know. I know it that well. The Bible is like that, you guys. The Bible, there is something different to it. And we trust that the Holy Spirit helped lead the church to discern what was and what wasn't. Now, that's, that may be a little scary for you to know that. Like in real history, people, we had to trust people and councils to be able to discern what was what. But I want to point out something else that helps us get to John 8. Number six, there is a very, 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 very small number of disputed texts or verses in the Bible um, the three major, well, two, the two major ones are this story and the end of Mark. Those are the two in, like major. Like we're not sure if this should be in the Bible. And then there's a handful of like a single verse. Like if you remember when you were here when we taught John five when the guy was healed, and it, there's this one verse that said an angel stirred the pool. And there's a note by that verse like ah we're not sure about that verse. So we have like that verse, John eight and Mark sixteen out of like the thousands of verses in the Bible. And I just want you to be encouraged. Church history has been able to narrow it down to like these few verses we're not sure about. And so they've put these few verses, these few passages through like a lot of scrutiny. Uh, be encouraged that these few verses and passages um, they in no way change doctrine at all, at all. Like they don't say anything new or say anything wrong. So they don't change doctrine. They're simply uh, things in the original texts, the oldest texts, the copies that we have that make these few passages stand out. So like in John 8, your, your footnote will probably say, hey, some of the oldest manuscripts do not have this and some do have this. So what are we to think about John 8? Um, number seven, I want you to know this. It's disputed, John 8's disputed because uh, it does, it kind of has like a random flow. Like if you're reading John 7, Jesus is talking to the crowd. And then if you look at the end of this passage, verse 11, Jesus is still talking to the crowd. So like, oh, it kind of like just like puts it in the middle of a conversation. So I don't know this flow. That's one of the reasons why it stood out. Another reason, is people say that there is a unique phrase used here that John doesn't use anywhere else. Uh, it's the, when he says all the scribes and Pharisees, that phrase right there is used in all the other gospels, but it's never used in John. It's like, ah, oh, it just doesn't sound like John. Like, I don't know if John wrote that. Um, but I also want you to know that there are phrases in this passage that none of the other gospel writers use that John does use. So there's enough like, hmm, could be, it couldn't be. We're not sure. Um, And I want you to know this. Some of the oldest manuscripts don't have it and some of the oldest manuscripts do have it. It's not like, oh, it's not there and it showed up later in history. It's like, why do some have it? Why do some not have it? Uh, I want you to know this about this story. It's universally agreed on that it happened. It's a real story. Like it's a history. This isn't just like, oh, this is so random. This like, it it bears all the marks of a real story. It's authentic. One reason to know that is the early church was so hardcore about sexual sin. Like they even said, like, don't even marry people. And here Jesus is to an adulteress is like, yeah, don't sin anymore. Like this is radical that the early church would not have liked. People even argue, hey, maybe some of the early scribes were like, dude, this passage is crazy. And they took it out. People make that argument. But know this, this is for sure a real story that happened in history about Jesus. This is a real story that happened about Jesus. Um, It's cool because at the end of the book of John, he says, hey, there are many things Jesus did that if I, 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 I didn't have enough time and room to write it all down, if I could write it all down, it would fill all kinds of books. And so we can know for sure this is history, for sure it happened. And even John himself is like, things happened that I didn't write down. So even if these verses are not original to John, uh, it's a story that happened, and Jesus, who is the Word of God, is revealing truth about God in this story. Um, a couple more points I want you to know: throughout church history, church history has affirmed this passage as authentic. And it wasn't until later when we we developed, we we found more manuscripts and older manuscripts, and like, why don't some of these manuscripts have it? That we've decided it's not original. Um, So there are people who argue, hey, I think this is real because like church history and a thing called apostolic tradition like validates this. Like this just, this when we were praying about the Bible and if this should go in or shouldn't go in, it got in. Like the church throughout church history has affirmed this should be here. Um, The other thing about it is it just like scripture, it rings true and it sounds like Jesus. Like when you read this story, like, like this is some of people's favorite story. And I think that's because It's like Jesus. This is like what Jesus is like. It rings true. It has truth to it. And so to like sum this whole thing up about these verses, um, again, there are a few of these verses and they're disputed, meaning it's not 100% clear that they should be there. They shouldn't be there. Let it encourage you. Let it encourage you about all the rest of the Bible that's not disputed. Um, And then let me just say this. I read, I probably read like 12 commentaries and they refer to all the other commentaries about this passage, if it should or shouldn't be here. Uh, you know, my opinion is I think it's scripture. I actually think it's the divine word of God. I actually do believe that. I, I can't say with as much authority as every other verse in the Bible, but I think because of church history, apostolic tradition, it's a real thing. It sounds and smells like Jesus. It tastes like Diet Coke. I think it's real, but um, As we as we read this uh, these eleven verses, um, I'm gonna teach it along with other scriptures that affirm everything in this, so that you can know that you know that you're hearing from God tonight and not just a disputed text. So everything in here is affirmed in all kinds of other verses in the Bible. And so as we read through it, I'm just gonna read more scripture to just bolster your confidence. Like, yes, this is what Jesus is like. So that's the little intro to this passage. Obviously, people have different opinions. I think it's legit, but if you don't, that's fine. We'll read other verses along as we go. Um, Okay, so here's what we're gonna do. I'm actually gonna start us off. We're gonna kind of reread it. So it says, Jesus goes home. Verse two, he comes back to the temple. He sits down. And then let's read verse three and four again. Verse three and four says this. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery Placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. It's gnarly. It's so gnarly. Imagine, you guys, just imagine if somebody, like a bunch of pastors, burst into the room right now and they had a girl, a young woman, like by the arm, caught in adultery. She's probably not dressed super appropriately, if at all. And they bring her to the front, they interrupt Jesus's sermon. And like, they start like accusing her in front of everybody. Like, can you picture that? Like, can you imagine like what that would feel like? And listen, I bet you there are some people there who were just disgusted at her. Like, I'm sure that was the thing. Like, I cannot believe. And then I'm sure there were other people who were like, I can't believe this is happening right now. Like this happened in history. This woman was brought before Jesus and her sin is being publicly declared to the room. Like, imagine if that happened to you. At your worst moment, some guys grabbed you, brought you to the front of a church service and just declared to the room, this is their sin. Like, this is what happened. And I I wanna be honest with us. I think that scene is a picture of humanity. Like, we as humanity do that to each other. I think we actually do that to each other. We, in our brokenness, have brought other people's sins into the light, into a conversation, and we like display it for everyone else to see. I think we do that. Every time you gossip about somebody else, we're like doing that. Like we're like bringing them before this crowd of people and we're just displaying, look at their sin. I think we do that. And you know, I even think as a culture, we do this. Uh, It's, you know, it may be different things. I wasn't even sure if I should bring it up, but like, you guys heard of Bill Cosby, probably sexually assaulted a lot of people. And because uh, he just finally became guilty, like as a culture, we're just doing that to him. And I'm not saying it's okay. I'm not saying anything he did is okay. But like, we still do that to people. We still like, just say, look at this person. Can you believe this person? Like we as humanity do that. And you know, I just want to say uh, Some people have a hard time with the Bible and with some attributes of God, even things like hell. But I just wanna say, I think we're gnarlier than God sometimes. I actually think we are far harsher and more judgmental than the God we see in the Bible. I actually think that. I actually think we are just like this. And then notice what they say in verse four. No, verse five. They say, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Now, this is really interesting, because the law actually doesn't say that. Do you know what the law says? I'll read it to you. Leviticus 20, God I love Leviticus. Leviticus 20 verse 10 says this: Listen, if a man you hear that? You hear that? This is the law. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That's what the law says. What these guys are doing are grabbing not the man, they're grabbing the woman, which in this culture is the more helpless person in that equation. And they bring her before Jesus and they say, look, Moses said we should stone women like this. Like they're not even getting it right. They either let the guy go, he like escaped, or they just said, you know what, we're grabbing her. Cause maybe this will have more of an effect. And I think as humanity, we do that too. We act like, I can't believe this. I can't believe these people, but like we let other people go. We just let them off the hook, but like we will crucify this. And these guys were grabbing this woman, not the man. And they were twisting what the law says. And I just want to point out, this was not a love for justice. That's a thing, like it's okay to long for justice. It is a valid God-given imprint on us to be mad at evil and feel good about justice. That is right, it is right. It is right for us to see someone who's guilty be punished. That is a good thing. This is not that. Justice would be grabbing the man and the woman. This is not a love for justice. This is selecting a few sins of a few people and shaming them and using their sin against them and, and embarrassing them in front of everybody. It's selective and it's biased. This is not justice. And then, look, listen, they didn't even obey the law because if they were to obey the law, they would have just stoned her. Think about that. If they were about the law, she would have been dead. They would have just done it. They would have obeyed it but they, they didn't obey the law. They, they come to Jesus and they ask him about the law. This is not a genuine love for justice. This is humanity's, this is a picture of our brutal desire to shame one another for their sin. That's what this is a picture of. And uh, I, I just wa- wanna point out like this, this is still us. You know, maybe, maybe for some of us like, we're really passionate about like racial reconciliation and racial justice, Um, and that's good and right. But at the same time, we're like neglecting to address, I don't know, like killing our nation's babies. Or maybe we're like against homosexuality. This is wrong, this is a sin. And we're secretly indulging in our own sexual immorality. Like, does that sound like us? Maybe we're against like, oh, theological liberalism. People don't preach the Bible. But like, we're just really proud. And like, we're really rude or mean. Like, we as humans are selective about the sin that bothers us. And we're, we're really quick to kind of justify other sins and not bring it up. You know what, this guy, we're just gonna let him go. Like, that is who we are. We do this. And then verse six, as it moves on, gives us a picture into their heart. Um, Again, it's not justice. Look at verse six says. It says, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Um, They were using this woman and her sin to like test Jesus. That's like, that's doubly twisted, right? Like I'm gonna publicly shame somebody to put Jesus on trial. Like that's what they were doing. And, And here's what the practical test is. Um, at that time the Jewish nation were under Roman occupation so they had some freedoms and then they didn't have other freedoms and one of the uh, the rules the laws of that day is Jews yeah we know your Bible talks about stoning people but you're actually not allowed to kill people you can't do that that's our job so Jews were not allowed to enforce capital punishment that's why they brought Jesus to Pilate to kill him they didn't go to like the priests alone that's why that happened Um, and so on the one hand, Jews were not able to kill people. On the other hand, um, if so, so they're saying to Jesus, "Hey Jesus, what should happen here?" Because if Jesus says, "Yeah, she should die," they would have something to take to the Romans and be like, "Look what Jesus is saying. He's like trying to usurp your laws." But if, on the other hand, Jesus says, "You know what? No, don't stone her," then he's going against the law of Moses. And they can bring him to the religious leaders and be like, "Look, he's telling us don't obey the Bible." So they're trying to put Jesus in the situation where he can, he, like, they're testing him, and on some way or another, they're gonna, like, they're gonna be getting after him, being able to punish him, being able to, like, say, "Hey, look, Jesus, you're guilty." And I want to say this about a test. Um, I think we do the same thing to Jesus. I think we often, at our worst moments, if we're honest, have moments where we're like putting Jesus on trial. Like, Jesus, you really like this? I think, I think we're prone to test God. Like, God, I, I need you to prove yourself to me. I think that we do that. And then look what Jesus does in this response to this test. The second half of verse six. It's the most random thing in the universe. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. It's like what a ridiculous quote that is. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And I think that's because God doesn't usually respond to our challenges the way we would like or the way we would expect. In this moment, Jesus is like, I'm not even gonna like answer this right now. I'm just, I have something better to do. I'm drawing on the ground. That's what Jesus does. He bends down and draws on the ground. Now it's pretty awesome if you read commentaries on like this verse, everybody has all these ideas about what Jesus was writing. Um, Some people are like, you know what, Jesus is just doodling, you know, he's drawing pictures. Um, Maybe he's not sure what he's gonna say, so he's like buying time, like, let me just draw over here while I think about this test. Um, Augustine, who's really smart, but maybe this isn't true, he said, you know what, the law of Moses was written on stone, right, 10 commandments, but Jesus writes on man who's dust of the earth. Sounds awesome. I don't know if it's Augustine's maybe making it up. Maybe he's right, who knows. Um, Another, the majority of of commentators think this. Um, He began to write their sin on the ground. Picture that. Jesus, what should we do about this woman's sin? And, And some people wonder if maybe he just writes on over here, like murderer, and he like looks at a guy. And then he writes over here, liar, and he looks at him. And then he writes over here, adulterer and looks at that Pharisee. Like we don't know for sure what Jesus is doing as he's writing, but verse seven gets us into his mind. Verse seven says this, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Like that's pretty next level right there, what Jesus just said. Jesus is saying to support what he just said with two other verses in Romans, chapter two, verse one. Paul says this, "'Therefore you have no excuse, O man, "'every one of you who judges, "'for in passing judgment on another, "'you condemn yourself, "'because you, the judge, "'practice the very same things.'" And then he says two verses later, "'Do you suppose, O man,' you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God. Paul is saying just what Jesus is saying here. Hey, you guys wanna be like judges and you guys are guilty of the very same things. What Jesus is confronting right here, you guys, is religious hypocrisy, right? Like religious people, who are all about the law of God and doing the right things for God, who are really quick to like point their fingers at sinners, but who themselves are guilty of sin. Like it's not wrong to be mad at sin. I hope sin bothers us. It's not wrong, but it is wrong to be sinful as a person and then think that we have the right to go judge another person for their sin. That's, that's wrong. That's hypocrisy. And Jesus is pointing out, hey, people are not the ones to be throwing stones because people are all guilty. We are not the judge. We disqualify ourselves as judges because we have the same sin in our life as the people we're judging. Um. Just Something I've noticed uh, with really, really intense uh, religious people who are really, really upset over a particular sin. You guys, I've, I've seen it hand and like time and time again. There's like secret sin down there somewhere that makes them so intense at other people's sin. I think when we are like in sin over here, we like to find another sin and just like we're gnarly, on somebody else. Because when we actually see our own sin, like, do you know what it does? It humbles us. It makes us shut our mouth because we are broken and we know I am no better than that person. And why would I like pick up my rocks and throw them at their sin when I know I, if somebody saw me, they would do the same thing for me. When we're really quick to judge, I think it's because we are blind to our own gnarly sin. And so Jesus says, hey, I, tch, you guys are guilty. And if you guys, which I think is a good reason to think why he was writing their sin, I think he made them see their sin and said, okay, go ahead, throw your stones. Um, you guys remember David when he like stole a man's wife and then had the guy killed, and lied about it. Um, and a, a prophet came to address him and God does this. God's lovingly smart to to go around our walls. And so the prophet says to David, hey, David, there's this guy in your kingdom and um, he has a lot of sheep. He's really rich. But he had somebody come over to his house and he didn't wanna kill one of his sheep. He went to his neighbor and his neighbor had one sheep and it was like their pet, like the kids loved him and like they they took care of the sheep. And the the neighbor said, you know what? I'm taking your sheep, I'm killing your sheep to give for dinner for my guests. And David rightfully is like, Who is this guy? He deserves to die. This is horrible. I will not allow him to live. And then the prophet Nathan looks at David and says, you are the man. You are the man. You guys, I think it's the love of God to when we are so upset over someone else's sin, I think it's the love of God to say to us, hey, you, you are the man. You are the woman. You are no better no more clean in and of yourself than they are. Um, And I think, you guys, religious hypocrisy is like one of the quickest ways to ruin like our witness about the grace and love of God. Uh, Romans 2, at the end of that chapter, it says, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you at the end of all this talk about religious hypocrisy, he says, the name of God is blasphemed. It's made fun of in the world because you are busy judging people. Like we blaspheme God's name. We allow the world to blaspheme God's name when we're just like religiously angry at the world. And so verse eight says this. And once more, this is crazy. He bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And this is profound, you guys, because Jesus is the only one who meets the qualification to actually throw a stone at her. He's the only one. Everyone else has sin. And listen, this is how it's gonna be on the day of judgment. None of us are gonna have the right to like judge other people because we will all have our sin. No one else will be around. Jesus will be sitting on his throne and he will be the only righteous one. And Jesus, the only one who's able to pick up a stone and throw it at her, look what he says in verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, "Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And this is profound. He says, neither do I condemn you. Listen, he doesn't say, you're not guilty. He doesn't say, don't worry about it. He simply says, neither do I condemn you. And uh, if you're like theologically minded, or if you're justice minded, you may be thinking like, what? Like, that's not right. That's not justice and we have all this talk about God who is holy and he's perfect and sin can't be in his presence. Like what the, what is going on here? And we know it's not right for God to just like sweep our sin under the rug and be like, oh, don't worry about it. I don't condemn you. It's not a big deal. Um, we are outraged when a judge says to a clearly guilty person, "I don't, I don't condemn you. Like we're upset about that. So what's happening here? How can Jesus say truthfully to her, I don't condemn you, you guys, because Jesus was condemned in her place. On the cross, Jesus, he knew I'm going to the cross and I will bear her sin on my shoulders. I will experience the condemnation that she and us rightfully deserve from God and we could receive the mercy and grace and forgiveness of God. You guys, the the cross is amazing because God is perfect and he's just and he will always punish sin and he's loving and he's gracious. And these two attributes of God, he's perfect and holy and gracious and loving, they're reconciled as, listen, the justice of God is poured out on the son of God so that the love of God could be given to us who would put our trust in him. Like God is just and he deals with sin and the cross is where he deals with it upon his own son. That is how Jesus can say, I don't condemn you. I'll be condemned for you. Jesus, the judge of the world, was judged for the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Like this is the best news, the gospel, that those of us who are like this women, woman who have sin in our lives can hear from Jesus tonight, I don't condemn you because I was condemned in your place. A fancy word for that is substitutionary atonement because Jesus was our substitute. Like she deserved to be punished. She deserved it. And Jesus says, nope, I will be punished. And atonement meaning I will cover her sin. And I just wanna say, I wanna throw it out there. This idea of substitutionary atonement is really unpopular. It's like one of the most classically attacked truths about the gospel. People don't like the idea that Jesus would be killed for sinners. People even say, what? Like this is divine child abuse. God would punish his own son. And I just wanna remind you this, Jesus is God. And Jesus is God himself saying, I will lay my life down for sinners. I will willingly go. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Like the cross, substitutionary atonement is beautiful. It's God himself saying, I will die for you, that you can experience my love. Like that is grace. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And listen, when when somebody attacks substitutionary atonement, what they're doing is saying, I'd rather take my sin on myself. I'd rather, I'd rather not Jesus take it, I want it. Like, like, why would we ruin the gospel and say, no, I don't like this, I want my, like, this is the gospel that Jesus would be condemned in our place. Listen, two more verses. For, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John three seventeen. and listen, this is such a good verse. Romans 8, verse one, there is therefore Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And verse three says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus was condemned so that we can hear, you are not condemned. And then it's so profound how Jesus ends this. He says, go and sin no more. Because you guys, the grace of Jesus like changes us. The grace and forgiveness that we receive from Jesus when we hear, I do not condemn you, that actually like leads us out of sin. That leads us into a life of holiness. You guys, grace is so much more effective to change us than just law. Like, hey, don't do this anymore. Like, I don't condemn you. So like, don't live this way. Like when when you understand what Jesus did for you on the cross, like it it does something to your heart that makes you like wanna love Jesus more and not just like abuse sin and like, oh, he's gonna be gracious. Like I'm gonna go do what I want. Like it actually changes us. Like we know this in the best stories, in the best books written, sacrificial love is like the most powerful act of change. Sacrificial love changes us. You guys, it's the same thing for relationships. You guys have drama in your relationships. Let me just give you a little relational nug. Grace is way more effective at changing people than like, hey, stop doing this. Grace changes us and our relationships. When someone says, stop it, that command has no power in it. But when someone says, I see you as you are and I forgive you and love you and I'll love you no matter what, like that has power to change us. And do you know what else? For those of us who are like these Pharisees and we're prone to point our fingers at others, Jesus says, listen, I I want you to view your sin as like a log in your eye, a really big log in your eye. Yeah, people have sin in their life, they're specks though, okay? So I want you to be more bothered by this log in your eye, which makes sense, than all the specks in their eyes. That is the way we are to like view the world. Yeah, the world, they're sinful. Everybody's sinful for sure. But I'm like way more sinful. I have this fat log in my eye. And when we approach people with like, hey, let me get this speck. We don't do it like, hey, let me get this speck. Like we're smacking them with the log. Like it's not gonna work. We have to be like, man, I am so broken, I have a significantly bigger problem than you do, but I love you and I want to address what's going on in your life. We're always to view our sin as like the biggest deal in, our, in, in the equation. When you're talking to somebody about their sin, your sin should be a bigger deal to you than their sin. And that like posture of like, man, I'm broken and Jesus loves me, allows us to like tenderly go and call other people's sins out. Listen, listen. Just be honest, what bugs you more? Like other people's sin or your sin? Like what practically goes through your head more throughout the day? And if it's other people's sin, I think we have an opportunity to to hear the grace of God and be like, man, I'm not gonna throw a stone. Like I need the grace of God in my life. And so uh, as we like approach worship, this is really powerful, you guys. Like Jesus is here in our presence. And he says, I don't condemn you. If you've trusted in me, I do not condemn you. And so as as we approach worship, listen, I know this is what our enemy does. The enemy, Satan is called the accuser. And what he does all day long is what these men did. And he accuses you of your sin. And listen, on the one hand, he's right. Like we have sin in our life. And the enemy has like real ammo to be like, look what you've done. But, Remember what Jesus is like. He silences the accuser with the cross. And he says, I don't condemn this person. Like Jesus is standing there for us in our sin saying, I don't condemn them. I was condemned in their place. And listen, when you remember the cross, it silences the accuser. And he's like, he's gotta go. Like he's like, dang, I have no ammo. i will go accuse somebody else now. When you remember the cross that Jesus was condemned in your place, you actually can like speak that over your life, Jesus was condemned. When the enemy says, look, you're guilty, you're dirty, you're filthy. Remember, that sin was nailed to Jesus on the cross. And take every opportunity, when that comes in your heart and mind, remind the devil, oh yeah, it's on the cross where you were defeated. Like, you can't speak over me anymore. Like Jesus speaks over me, that I am not condemned. And then let's hear tonight what Jesus says, go and sin no more. You guys, repentance isn't just like, I feel bad about my sin. It's like, I'm changing my life. I'm not sinning anymore. That's what true repentance is. Go and sin no more. And so tonight, if there is sin in your life, I would encourage you to repent of that sin to Jesus, even to confess it. Don't like stand your ground Don't be like, no, it's fine, Jesus. I want my sin. I don't wanna bring it to you. Like, bring it to Jesus where he was condemned in your place. Like, repent, confess, get prayer, and remember Jesus. And together, as we just sit in his presence, and as we hear him say, I don't condemn you anymore, let's just look to the face of Jesus. Let's let him speak his love and his mercy over us. Jesus, I, I thank you that that you are a God who had every right to judge every person in this room. And yet, Jesus, you came and you were judged for every person in this room. Lord, if there are any people right now who don't trust that and are just like, I'm good, Lord, would you graciously, by the power of your spirit, reveal, like, no, I, I'm, I'm guilty and I need Jesus. I need the cross, Lord, if there are any of us who are just stuck in shame, like this picture of this woman, just ashamed of what we've done, would we hear Jesus? You say, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. I was condemned for you. Give us hearts to believe, to hear the truth that in Jesus there is no condemnation for us. God, thank you that you do delight in in mercy more than judgment, that you are a God who delights in showing mercy and grace. God, we repent for any ways in which we are just delighting in judgment against other people, even ourselves. Lord. Would, Would we receive your mercy together tonight? Would we worship you for what you have done for us on the cross?